0: We are in the midst of a sermon message series entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And I have challenged you last week to start putting names to faces because I get tired of trying to describe you to one another. You know, you know, Pastor Jeff. No, who are you talking about? You know, Pastor Jeff. No, who are you talking about? Well, he sits over on the right hand section. He's medium built. He's probably about 5'8 for a nine, 5'9. He's got salt and pepper hair. He wears glasses. Oh, yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. And you don't know how many different times I say, Hey, you know, you know, Tim Jicka. No, who are you talking about? You know, Tim Jicka, Joy's husband. No, I don't know who you're talking about. Tim, you know, Tim And, and, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Tim, you know, and they probably don't know, but, you know. So over the next few weeks, as we are talking about won't you be my neighbor, I'm really challenging you. As I said last week, being a good neighbor is more than being a good Samaritan. Being a good neighbor is more than just a simple random act of kindness. Being a neighbor goes deeper being a neighbor means crossing the street. I got convicted this week. I, I, I think I went fishing Friday, uh, Sunday afternoon. No, Saturday morning I went fishing. I came out. I saw my neighbor. I, I waved to him. And he says, hey, how are you? I go, good. I said, I've been fishing. Oh, you fish? And we talked across the street, you know, for maybe a, a minute or so. And, and that was all. And then on Monday night, uh, give it up. Jeff Davis, where are you, Jeff? Man, we caught some trout. Uh, on Monday night, and I went home, and I cleaned them. I cut them all up, cleaned them, and my neighbor was outside. So I decided, okay, a pastor has to practice what he preaches. Are you willing to go across the street? I went across the street with some clean fish in a baggie. I said, you know, I said I fished. Well, here's some of the fish I caught. He goes, oh, wow, they're pretty. I go, yeah, they're rainbow trout. I'm taking them over to my mother-in-law. She's going to cook them up, eat them. Oh, I bet she'll be happy. And, you know, we just started talking a little bit. Being a good neighbor means crossing the street, sharing your life, and not seeing that person as simply a project but a relationship to cultivate. Now, when we cultivate relationships, we know sometimes we need to put boundaries on those relationships because sometimes people will take those relationships so far. But at least I am challenging you over these summer months maybe to even (coughs) cross the aisles into a different section. I was so excited last Sunday after the first service. The Maloney's were talking to Denise. Denise is on the far right. The Maloney's are on the far left. But at a parking lot service, they actually came together, introduced one another, and got names to faces. That's what we should be as the body of Christ. Won't you be my neighbor? Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. We look at Pentecost Sunday as the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says when the day of Pentecost came. It sounds like a holiday doesn't it? Which is exactly what it is. Pentecost is a holiday. If you go back into your Old Testament it's not called Pentecost because Pentecost is the Greek name for the festival that the Jews celebrated. The Greek name uh, is Pentecost, which means 50 days after Passover. Fifty days after Passover, they celebrated in the Old Testament what we call the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of the Weeks. Now, this is found five times in the Old Testament in the first five books. Exodus chapter 23, Exodus chapter 24, Leviticus chapter 23, Deuteronomy, Numbers uh, 28, and uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Five times you'll, you'll see this feast. Now, this feast was to celebrate, are you ready? The feast was to celebrate the spring harvest of the wheat. It was a celebration of the spring wheat harvest. Now, that you get a better understanding what's taking place in Acts chapter 2 for this holiday... You need a little bit more information about this holiday. In the Old Testament, there were three celebrations, three religious observances, which the law required for every male, plus and sometimes their families, to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of the Harvest. So the Feast of the Harvest was one of those three religious observances where no matter where Jewish people scattered to, they were required to come back to Jerusalem for this celebration. It was during this time that people did not work. It was during this time that the priest would make two loaves of wheat bread from the first grain. How many know the first always belongs to the Lord? So they would make two loaves of wheat bread, and they would offer it up to the Lord. And Jerusalem, at this time, would be packed. It would be crowded. People would come to celebrate this great harvest festival in Jerusalem to celebrate the goodness of God and His faithfulness. The only thing I can equate it to is sort of like our Thanksgiving, when we remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God The Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the goodness and the faithfulness of God in this wheat harvest. So it's during this time, the setting, Jerusalem is crowded. It's packed with thousands upon thousands and thousands of people. They estimate it up to at least sometimes even a million at times. Now from this, Acts chapter 2, I just want to, as we look at the day of Pentecost as the, as the birth of the New Testament church, I started to look at some characteristics of that early church. And I just want to go through and share some of the characteristics of that early Pentecostal church and share them with you. First, a Pentecostal church is a united church. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. Now, that word together is one of Luke's favorite words to describe the early church. Many times, Luke will describe the early church with this word together. It's a word that means together. They gathered with a unanimous purpose, one mind. They were all together with a unanimous purpose in one place. In the King James, it says this. In the King James, it says they were all together in one accord. All singing the same chord. All singing the same song. No one going off on their own harmonies, or on their own strange lyrics. But we see one of the first characteristics of the early church is that they gathered for a unanimous purpose. One in mind, one in thought, one in intent. And in case you've missed it, but at the end of chapter 2, Luke gives a description of what the early church looked like. Every day, they continued to meet together. There's that word together. One of the famous words he has to describe the early church. Unanimous purpose. In the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of some of the people. No. Enjoying the favor of all the people. This is what I believe this scripture is saying. I kind of thought about this. The church that eats together. Come on, somebody. After 14 months, two weeks ago, we were able to meet over at Frankie Fed's with Young at Heart. And what a glorious time we had as 28 people gathered and we had lunch. Usually at Young at Heart, after an hour, everybody's getting restless. They want to go home. After two and a half hours, nobody wanted to go home. And let me tell you something. If you're 55 and older and you're too proud to come, well, you're missing out on good fellowship and a free lunch. The church that eats together is the church that plays together, is the church that stays together, is the church that worships together, is the church that prays together, is the church that is united together with one another. They broke bread together. The church should be a place as a result of their eating and their meeting and they're gathering and enjoying the favor. In case you missed the second part of verse 47, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People in the community was so amazed at the oneness and the unity and the camaraderie of the early church that that people just wanted to be a part of, of what was taking place. You see, the church should... Should be a place where Democrats and Republicans and independents come together to worship. It should be a place where cowboys and accountants come together. It should be a place where left brain and right brain people come together. It's a place where rich and poor come together. It's a place where those who root for the Mets and the Jets worship alongside of those who root for the Yankees and the Giants. And then you have the more spiritual ones who mount themselves up and root for the Eagles. But we all come together. The way I see it, it's the church is a place where God's children come together and we don't lose our uniqueness. We don't lose our individuality. But we join together in an atmosphere of respect and acceptance and love for the unified purpose of reaching this lost world for Jesus Christ. That's our unified purpose. Lloyd Oglesby, anybody, come on, Lloyd Oglesby, Presbyterian pastor, and, but he's most noted for, Lloyd Oglesby, being the chaplain to the Senate from 1995 to about 2003. I know he died in 2019. But Lloyd Oglesby wrote this book entitled The Drumbeat of Love. Now, this is something that you really need to ponder, this is very profound. Lloyd Oglesby says, I have never known a contentious group to receive the Holy Spirit. Nor have I seen a church with division and disunity prevail, receive the blessings of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and in the life of the church. And what Lloyd Ogilvie reminds us of is sometimes every once in a while we need to do a relational inventory. You know what a relational inventory is? A relational inventory is if there's aught against anyone, if there's aught against my brother, i better make it right. One of the first characteristics I see of that early Pentecostal church, it was a united church. Now, I want to go back to Acts chapter 1 and take a look at another characteristic that actually is a first characteristic and gives us the reason why they were reunited, why was the early church so united? Because in Acts chapter 1, we read how they all joined, come on, together. There's that word of Luke that he loves to describe the early church with one mind, with unanimous purpose, with a unanimous purpose, with one mind. They joined together they joined together with a unanimous purpose, and that unanimous purpose kept them in prayer, in constant prayer, for 10 days. There were 120 gathered in the upper room. Now, what was the unanimous purpose that joined them together for 10 days in constant prayer? Because Jesus said this, as he ascended into heaven, he told his followers, do not leave Jerusalem. But what? Wait. For the gift my Father has promised and the unanimous purpose, the reason, what joined them together in one mind for 10 days in constant prayer was they were waiting and they were praying in obedience to what Jesus said for the gift that their Father promised them. And I believe that it's a result of this 10-day Prayer meeting that unified them. You see, the church was born out of a prayer meeting. Now, I want to share something from my own personal prayer life that I hope will be of interest. It's hard, it's hard to pray for people you don't like, for people you don't trust. Do you know what I'm saying? I find it hard. But you know what else I find interesting? It's hard to dislike people that you're praying for. It's hard to pray for people you dislike. But it's also hard to dislike people you're praying for. So you can either like people that you're praying for. Or you can dislike people and stop praying for them. You see, because there's a connection. There's something connected to prayer which is love. And as I pray for people that I dislike, all of a sudden, through praying for them, I'm reminded that they are made in the image of God. And if they are made in the image of God, who am I to dislike that which God has created? And the more I pray for them, the more I become a friend to them. And I believe it's what this is what united the church. When Jesus said pray for your enemies. He wasn't just talking about those who lived in Iran. But he was talking to those who right were among your own fellowship. Because the more you pray for someone. The more you become Tolerant and willing and accepting. When I think of that how church, a church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. Out of a body that was unified. I don't know if you've ever read a lot of books on spiritual awakenings the great spiritual wakings and revivals. But there's one thing that always precedes spiritual awakenings and revivals. And that was unified prayer. Prayer always precedes the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Well, the third characteristic I see of the Pentecostal church is not only is it a unified church, not only is it a church that prays, but it is a Spirit-filled church. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I'm sure that all of us are familiar with this being a Pentecostal church. And when it says all of them, it means the apostles, the disciples, the women, all of them that were in that upper room, 120. Now why is this significant? Why is this so important? I believe the significance here is the reason why the early church succeeded, the early—the reason why the early church succeeded prevailed, even through persecution, and we know that persecution was great back then. What was it that allowed the early church to succeed and prevail even through persecution? It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, many times we get sidetracked and we focus on the signs we lose sight of the power of the Holy Spirit, but we, we, we focus on the signs, the, the blowing in of a, a, a rushing wind, or the cloven tongue of fire that appeared above their heads, or, or the speaking in tongues. Now, I'm not saying any of that is insignificant, all that is of great significance. In fact, it's not just a one time event. If you look at Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius, if you look at Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, if you look at Acts chapter 8, it's implied. We see this reoccurring in Scripture. If you look at historical records, there are accounts of people speaking in tongues. But that is not my emphasis this morning. I'm not emphasizing the sign. I want to emphasize the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when you take a look before and after the day of Pentecost, if you do a character study of the different individuals involved, you'll see a great transformation takes place, and it can all account to the day of Pentecost. You take a look at Peter's character, impetuous, impulsive, uh, 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 deceive, uh not deceiving, but uh, uh Rejecting Christ. But after the day of Pentecost, there was a great boldness. And and he went from the denier to the preacher that on the day of Pentecost, he stood up and he addressed the crowd what was taking place. If you take a look at Thomas's life, he went from doubting Thomas to missionary Thomas. If you take a look at the character study of all the disciples, you'll see that there was such a power, there was such a transformation that they were willing to be martyrs. They were willing to give their very life for the cause of Jesus Christ. And it was the coming of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, that transformed their lives. The way I see it, in the Old Testament, God sent rain down from heaven in order for the celebration of the wheat harvest. But on this Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit down from heaven heaven so that a great harvest of men and women could be brought to him. Which leads me to my fourth characteristic of a true Pentecostal church. A Pentecostal church is a harvesting church. A church that fulfills the great commission of taking the gospel into all the world. Now, I have to admit that when we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, in our devotional reading, we look, we skip, and we go on. Because we get to this chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, and all of a sudden it's Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts of Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and and, and we're like, okay, we, we kind of like skip and what's the, the point? The point was that all those different people groups heard the heard these Galileans heard these uneducated Galileans, heard, heard these fishermen declaring the wonders of God in their own language, in their own tongues. And they were perplexed. They were amazed. I did something interesting this week. I don't know why. Now I know why. But as a kid who went to church, I was always amazed with the back of the Bible and I looked at the, the maps and I always thought they were really cool, you know, and as the pastor was preaching and I knew nothing what he was saying and knew nothing of what was going on, I would I would sit there and just look at the maps and look at all the different, you know, geography and, and I always thought that was interesting and that was important in my life because I knew that in the back of the Bible there were maps. So the other day I looked at all this and I was thinking, okay, what's There's got to be a significance. Otherwise, Luke wouldn't have added it. So I I went to the back of my Bible, and I started, Paratheans, okay, the Medes, and I started to just highlight the areas that were mentioned. Are you ready? And this is what I discovered, that all of those people groups, if you were to chart them out, This is what you come with, a circle around Jerusalem. And I found it so fascinating. It really forms a circle around Jerusalem. What was taking place on that holiday, what was taking place on Pentecost, when God allowed those Galileans to be filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and different people group heard their own language being declared the the, the glories of God. what, What it was really saying to me was God was calling out to the world, Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be a part of me? And on the day when Jewish people would come to celebrate the harvest of wheat in Acts chapter 2 on this day of Pentecost as they celebrated the harvest of wheat there was also a harvest of souls when Peter got done preaching. Those who accepted the message were baptized and about three thousand were added to the number of that day. Could you imagine starting a church and on the day you start a church you have three thousand new members? Now catch the significance of what I'm going to say next. Those three thousand were a part of all those different people groups. Have you ever heard it said before that Paul and Silas were the first missionaries? Not. Paul and Silas were not the first missionaries. But it's the people from Macedonia, it's the people from Pamphylia, it's the people from Crete, it's the people from Rome, it's the people from uh, Arabia, it's the people from Egypt, it's the people from those surrounding areas Those 3,000 people who were baptized, who got saved, who went back to their home and started sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, those 3,000 people were the first missionaries. And church history shows it. We were just talking about Titus and how he was on the island of Crete Paul left them there to straighten out some problems. And if you go back to history, history believes that it was the people from Crete who went to the day of Pentecost, who received Christ, went back to their island, and started the church of Jesus Christ there. The significance is on this day of harvest, at the celebration of the wheat harvest, I don't believe it's a coincidence that God birthed his church for a great Harvest to begin. The beginning of the harvest. Acts chapter 2. Fast forward it to Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If You're to be a part, and you're to look out. Think with me. Look out at the great multitudes, and what are you going to see? You're going to see Haitians, and you're going to see people from Paraguay, and you're going to see people from Central America. You're going to see people from Asia, and you're going to see people from from Europe, and you're going to see people from Africa, and you're going to see people from Australia. You're going to see people. You're going to see southerners. And northerners, you're going to see westerners, you're you're going to see all people group. What a great harvest that no one can count. The day of Pentecost. On the celebration of the harvest, God started the harvest of men and women. Revelation, we see the final harvest. But for a moment... Let me talk about the now. Let me talk about the present. We value the great commission. I value the great commission of making disciples of all nations. But let us never forget that we also value the local church because it's the local church that God uses as a vehicle to fulfill the great commission. And we value people because without people, the church is just a building. God values you. God values all of us because he uses all of us as a vehicle to bring the harvest that is out there today. Do I, remind, do I need to remind you the words of Jesus? The harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Hey, won't you be my neighbor? Hey, won't you be my neighbor? And Jesus says, do not say four months more and then the harvest. Don't say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe unto harvest. We cannot afford to let the harvest. We cannot let the harvest. We cannot afford to let the harvest rot in the fields. can't allow the harvest to rot in the fields. In the midst of the celebration of Pentecost God birthed his church. God celebrated the harvest of souls. We saw the beginning we saw the end. But God uses you As one in his field. Won't you be my neighbor? Are you willing. To inconvenience yourself. To step across the street. To step across the aisle. To share your life. To cultivate a relationship. For God's harvest fields, for God's harvest, would you bury heads with me? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I always think about the fields that are white on to harvest. Those we might work with. Those who might be our physical neighbor. Those family members. The one who serves us our coffee. The one who maybe hands us our dry cleaning. The one who cuts our hair does your nail the fields are white on the harvest folks and we can't afford to let the harvest rot in the fields send your fire Lord send your fire Lord May we be a church that unifies, respects one another's individualities and uniqueness, but unifies for the purpose of reaching this lost world for Jesus Christ. And may you unify us through prayer. And may you fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit to go out into the fields that are white unto harvest